This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Hello and welcome to Savor Production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about morel mushrooms. Yes, morel mushrooms, which was a listener suggestion. Thank you, Candice. Mm-hmm. I love mushrooms and I love morel mushrooms. It is a rarity for sure. But I don't think I've ever had them. <gasps> I know. Wow. Right? Okay. We need this to go. Back up into Appalachia. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I I think that is the only solution. Back into Appalachia. (laughs) Or the Pacific Northwest. Oh, or the Pacific Northwest. I I said specific, but I meant specific, everyone. (laughs) Um. (laughs) It is a specific part of the Northwest, I suppose. Absolutely what I meant. It was not a slip of the tongue at all. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I do. I love mushrooms. And we have done past episodes on mushrooms. We've done truffles. We've done portobellos. And that episode still breaks my mind that apparently there's seven acceptable spellings of portobello. I don't know. I'm still mad about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much. (laughs) We need to agree and decide. Um, (laughs) That's what civilization is. Come on. It's on the fringe now because we can't agree on how to spell portobello or portobella. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> um, and yes, never forget the episode where we wandered into the woods and I ate that suspect mushroom. I will say, putting it like that makes me sound a lot more foolish than what really happened. It was still foolish. Well, 
It was, <laughs> I mean, you, we were with a like, like professional mushroom forager and yes. he did tell you to put it in your mouth. Yes, exactly. Uh, because mushroom picking can be very, very dangerous and you know, definitely do your research, do your due diligence, go with an expert. Yeah. But I did put a mushroom in my mouth and then he was like, don't swallow it. <laughs> and it was too late. It was too late. <laughs> so my bad. Everything worked out okay. I mean, yeah, it was just fine. It was just fine. It wasn't a toxic mushroom. He wasn't endangering you on purpose. No. Uh, no. He just said it was going to be really bitter. I don't really remember that. But <laughs> hey, it all turned out fine. Yeah. Speaking of not turning out fine, though. Oh, no. Let us also never forget that fungus and mushrooms, and specifically the cordyceps, are what jump-started the zombie apocalypse in The Last of Us, which is one of my favorite video games. And if you want to see mushrooms that look creepy as hell, look up pictures from that game, because they don't mess around. Oh, no, no. Cord- cordyceps in general are really, really horrifying in nature. Just I, mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely part of a Facebook group that's just images that people find or take of bugs that have been infected with that kind of fungal oh. issue. <laughs> and it is Lauren. a constant source of Cronenbergian <laughs> horror, and I love it intensely. <laughs> oh, I guess I should be surprised that you're part of such a Facebook group. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty on brand, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perhaps we should move on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this brings us to our question. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, <laughs> moral mushrooms. What are they? Well, uh, morels are a number of species of mushrooms in the genus Morchella that grow above ground in temperate areas of the Northwest Hemisphere. And they have so many fun nicknames. They do. <laughs> Hickory chickens. Molly moochers, <laughs> dry land fish, or just land fish. Okay. The sacred mushroom. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Merkles or Miracles, um, sponge mushrooms, pinecone mushrooms. Mm-hmm. They can range in a cap color from black to gray to a creamy yellow to white. They do not have a smooth cap, though, like a like a standard button mushroom or portabella. Um, their caps are oblongish, sort of sort of cone or like spearhead shaped, um, and deeply wrinkled, like a like a raisin or a natural sponge, or kind of sort of like a pine cone. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. those wrinkles are are the equivalent of the gills that you would find on a portabella. Um, and morels are hollow inside if you take cross section there's a little little space in there <laughs> along similar lines as truffles their growth cycle or, or like preferred growth circumstances are a little bit mysterious okay uh, general mushroom overview um uh, mushrooms are types of fungus we did a whole episode yes on them back in february of 2018 but in brief mushrooms are just super fascinating biologically because as a fungus They have properties of both animals and of plants. Um, They breathe oxygen and release CO2, carbon dioxide, like we do. They cannot photosynthesize. They eat by excreting digestive enzymes and then absorbing nutrients from the compounds that those enzymes break down. But they they don't have vascular systems the way that we do. They, They grow similar to the way that plants do, with new cells propagating out from developed ones, each with its own cell wall. But those cell walls can contain uh, chitin, 
like animal cells do. So basically, it's like WTF nature. Yeah. Yeah. Heck? Right. <laughs> nature. <laughs> Weird, very fairy tale like looking sprouting mushrooms. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love a good I love a good fairy circle of mushrooms. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh which tend to be green on the, the the grass tends to be greener inside a fairy circle of mushrooms, which is just a circle of mushrooms. Fairy circle is a uh uh, uh figurative term there or Fanciful? Fanciful. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, but the grass is greener inside because the, 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 the root system of the, of the mushrooms is in there breaking down nutrients that the grass uses to grow. Anyway. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Fairies. Blast. Well, but also cool. <laughs> I, I, cannot, I cannot confirm nor deny um, the fairy activity mm. involved. Okay. That's a separate right. show, I think. Yeah, somebody get on the case. I need to know. <laughs> I had a fairy house when I was growing up. Yeah. And I was, like, hiding behind bushes, taking pictures. <laughs> Come on. I believe, like, traps. Oh, that's I just so wanted proof. cute. Oh, my <laughs> heck. That's amazing. Oh, geez. Um, okay. All right. Uh, back to morels. Morels, in particular, have a life cycle that goes like this. Uh, a, a fully developed morel, which is, like, the, the fruit of the organism will release spores, which are like seeds that can then spread on air or water or moving creatures. And if those spores find themselves in an appropriate growing spot, they will germinate and uh, grow out an underground network called a mycelium, which is made up of uh, long, branching, ropey structures, sort of like roots. And if conditions are right, a section or sections of the mycelium will form up in a hardened mass, uh, sort sort of like a like a root vegetable, like a like a onion or something like that, called a sclerodium, um, which is a yeah a storage unit of nutrients for the system. Um, and then, if conditions are like even righter, the sclerodia will produce fruit, a morel mushroom, and continue that life cycle. But no one is entirely sure what the right conditions are for morels, which is why they're so dang expensive. They're, like, really difficult to farm. Um, So they're still largely foraged, which is an unpredictable venture at best. But it's not like we have no idea how this works. Um, It's just that morels are particularly confusing because, uh, so, okay, one of the ways that you can categorize mushrooms is how they feed, Um, whether they're uh, saprotrophic, meaning that they're scavengers that thrive on dead or dying tissue, in this case, like trees or tree mulch, or uh, mycorrhizal, meaning that they're symbiotic with living plants, like trees. Um, Mycorrhizal fungi will sort of team up with a plant's root system. Um, The mycelia break down compounds in the soil that the plants can't otherwise access, like in those fairy circles, yeah, giving those plants more nutrients. And in exchange... They draw carbohydrates from the plant's roots that the plant made via photosynthesis, which the fungus can't do. Morels seem to do both. Um, They're most often found near uh, hardwood trees like apple, elm, or aspen, though they can also be found near softwoods like cedar and hemlock, some pine trees as well. Um, the, The common denominators here are like decent shade and damp, rich soil. But morels seem to prefer dead or dying trees of these types in many situations. Which makes me go like, are morels like the banshees of the mushroom world? You're right. Maybe it's not a fairy circle. 
Maybe it's a banshee circle. (laughs) Oh, no. Gosh. We've already talked about zombies and banshees. This is this is a very. Uh, it's certainly not just that you and I are deep into the horror genre. <laughs> That's not it at all. Definitely Morel's fault. They are yes. goth mushrooms. That's what's up. Yes, I mean you said hollow on the inside and particularly confusing and mysterious. <laughs> what am I supposed to think? <laughs> oh no, they're so much like me. <laughs> <laughs> We can oh no. <laughs> we can find many and many things in common with the Morel mushrooms. <laughs> I gotta say, listening to you read through that, like go through that as if you think about zombies in mind, it's disturbing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So huh. just if you wanna have a different take on this whole Morel <laughs> mushroom episode, it's there. <laughs> uh um well, so, hard left from that. Uh, uh-huh. In areas where morels grow, they tend to fruit in the spring, uh, and foragers go out to look for them, um, often with their own secret spots that they return to each year. And the, the fact that they, that they grow in the spring helps cut down on accidental harvest of toxic mushrooms because many mushrooms are fall flowering. Um, also, morels' shapes are pretty distinct. And although there are a number of species of, of false morels, uh, it's relatively easy to tell the difference. But yes, always, always, always consult an experienced forager before eating a mushroom that you have found. Yes. 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 And also, there's a lot of, in areas where they grow in a decent number. A lot of government sources are there um, because also cooking, uh, ways to cook them that Uh are safe. Yeah. 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 So the resulting mushrooms, though, are used in any number of savory dishes as you would use any mushroom, though they do need to be cooked. Yes. Um, uh, Because they are hollow inside, they're sometimes stuffed with fillings like sausage. Oh, that sounds so good. Um, They're popular sautéed in butter or grilled or in soups or breaded and fried. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the season for them being harvested fresh is short, but of course they can also be uh, dried and reconstituted all year round. Like I said, I don't think I've ever had them, but I've read that they're um, less like mushroomy than other mushrooms, more like nutty and earthy, um, bordering on like woody or smoky with a particularly meaty texture. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Oh, it is almost morel season. I need to find some. <laughs> oh, that would be a very funny savory expedition. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean like personally, like in the woods. I meant like <laughs> oh, okay. For purchase. Well, either either way, you could turn it into a grocery expedition. Oh yeah. What about the nutrition? Uh, mushrooms are pretty good for you in general. Uh, lots of flavor bang for your caloric buck, and they've also got a good punch of vitamins and minerals. Of course, it does depend on how you prepare them. Um, I, I will say, you know, usually try to try to pair with some kind of fat and or protein, maybe a vegetable. Again, always a vegetable. Always a vegetable. Uh, <laughs> we do have some numbers for you. Mm-hmm. In Western North America, yearly commerce of morels ranges from five to ten million dollars. The biggest importers are France, Germany, and Switzerland. 
Uh, an estimated 300,000 pounds of dried morels are traded around the globe each year, equivalent to almost 3 million pounds of fresh moral mushrooms. Just a lot. Uh-huh. Um, from 2010 to 2015, exports of dried morels from China increased by five times, reaching 900,000 kilograms and averaging around $160 a kilogram. Oof. Yes, and morels can be quite pricey, as you said, Lauren. You have to forage them pretty much. Like, they're hard to get. Mm-hmm. When in season, they can run about $30 a pound and more than double that out of season. Idaho morel pickers made $1,500 a day in 2013. There are morel smugglers, especially on national park sites where you're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And morel hunting has been called morel madness, the sickness, and morel lust. Among other things, and selling them has been called Morel Mania and Morel Heaven. There are competitive Morel hunting festivals. At one of these hunting festivals, uh, the Boyne City, Michigan Festival, which is currently in its 61st year, the world record was recorded as of 2005 with one Stan Boris picking 945 morels in 90 minutes. Heck yeah. Right? <laughs> Uh, That's impressive. <laughs> I, I, I did look. I couldn't find an update to that record. But since the previous record of just over 900 was from 1970, there's like a real decent chance that it still holds. Wow. Right? Oh, wow. That huh. is, yeah. Because I can just imagine how exciting that would be. Because as you said, you know, there's no guarantee. Yeah. If you're going to find them and to find 945. Yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be real good at it. And I've heard that they are very tricky to find, even if you know what you're looking for in, in the wild, because um because they do blend in so well. And they do tend to, you're like, is it a pine cone or is it a very expensive mushroom? I'm not sure until you kind of <laughs> right. poke it, but you don't want to poke it too hard because they're delicate. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. there are several morel festivals around North America. Um, the uh, Messick, Michigan Festival is in their 62nd year. Both of these happen in May. The latter one includes a parade, and a blessing of the Jeeps? What? I don't know. I couldn't find any more information about it. I... Oh. We need to know. <laughs> we need to know about this. It's like exercising Jeeps. <laughs> Are they haunted Jeeps? Is it the Banshees? <laughs> uh, if anyone has been... Please, please do write in and let us know. And also, I hope that I pronounced the name of that city correctly. Um... There's also one in uh, Muscata, Wisconsin, that's in its 39th year. Apparently, Ottawa had one, um, but ended it in 2020 due to lack of financial support and, I suspect, overhunting in some known areas. Yeah, um, I did read about that as well, that some places have limits on how many you can forage Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. over a period of time, which has sometimes caused some friction. In the morel hunting community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of, there are smartphone apps for morel foragers, which I yes, love. <sighs> I love. <laughs> so delightful. And we have got a long way back to go in the history to talk about morel mushrooms. Oh, we do. But first, we've got a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. 
Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we are going in a way back for this one. I think it's been a while since we've gone this far back. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. So, mushrooms are old. Like, Millions of years old. Uh-huh. A recent research paper suggested that 20 of the endemic morel mushrooms identified in East Asia and China probably dated back to the Miocene period. Whoa! Five to 20 million years ago. Um, and a lot of papers I had to read for this were very scientific, and it was one of those things where, like, every other word I had to look up. Oh, <laughs> just sure. Just to make sure. Just to I be knew clear. Sure. Right. So endemic just meaning, like, originating there, kind of associated with that region. Morel researchers believe that they originated towards the end of the Jurassic period, which is 200 to 145 million years ago, in Western North America, where they diverged into a basal lineage also there, um, basically just diverged. Um, During the Cretaceous period, morels made their way across North America, diverging a few more times, and a few new species They popped up along the way, too. Separately, in eastern and western North America, they didn't interact that much. Some species transversed the land bridge that existed at the time into Europe, and then from there, they spread into Asia. And I'm pretty sure I read also the land bridge into Australia. (laughs) Whoa! I know! Okay, that's how long ago this was. That's cool. That's cool. Isn't that so cool? I can conceive of that, sure. And also... Yeah, there's a part of me that's just blown away that we could possibly know this at all. (laughs) But wow, (laughs) I get they're old. I got you. 
As North American mountain ranges like the Rocky Mountains formed, many species died out in that region because of the drier, cooler climates. Uh, The species evolved rapidly during the Miocene to Pleistocene eras. Um, Researchers speculate that's due to colder climates as well. The quaternary glaciation really slowed down species growth and led to some diversification and speciation. Again, it's a food show. This is blowing my mind. Humans have been eating morels since just about forever, or at least since there have been uh, humans. Uh, There's not really, as might be clear, a lot of early written record about this. But I did want to include this 2011 quote from an Oregon State University paper. Dinosaurs squashed them with impunity. Thousands of species that lacked culinary appreciation have turned up their noses at them. (laughs) And at a study based on advanced DNA analysis has shown that this shameful indifference went on for 129 million years. Wow. Shameful indifference. Shameful indifference. So many species that lacked culinary appreciation for the morale. They were missing out. They They were. They were missing out. (laughs) Um, One historical reason for humans' love of morels is because of their very distinctive appearance. Like you said, Lauren, lowering the risk of picking a poison mushroom. And yes, records of humans eating morels are a bit sparse, even though these mushroom researchers, which papers really were delightful, um, (laughs) do speculate that people have just been eating them forever. We know that the ancient Romans enjoyed them, often cooked with wine, Indigenous peoples of North America with access to them, boiled them, and used them in soaps. Um, interested in that? In Northern Europe, morels were typically cooked with cream and or butter. Some researchers believe the name morels derived from Old High German, so that would put it back sometime between 750 to 1050 CE, related to or diminutive of a word for carrot. Uh, in the sense of like edible root. Yeah, but right. no one's no one's really sure. Yes. There's a lot of uncertainties in this episode. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Um, but around the world, morals have and have had descriptive names that are also really fun. Indigenous peoples of Mexico call them things like, translated into English, um, little beehives and little tender corn ears. <laughs> I know. And over on the Tibetan plateau, they are sometimes called cuckoo mushroom since they fruit in spring, which is the same time that the cuckoo bird returns. One indigenous North American people called them star sores. Hmm. Yeah. Carl Linnaeus recorded them in 1753, and Elias Magnus Fries reclassified them in the early 1800s, though Christian Hendrik Persoon usually is credited with first classifying them in 1794. There are a few papers published around this time about the different species and varieties, and so much, so much confusion around the scientific classification. It continues. It it does. It does to this day. It is mm-hmm. con- contested. Yes. Um, and contestable. <laughs> contested and contestable. Mm-hmm. New show idea. <laughs> um, colonists settling in the Appalachian Mountains have been hunting and eating morels for at least hundreds of years. Not everyone was a fan, though. Hmm. Yes. Explorer Meriwether Lewis wrote in 1806, Cruzat brought me several large morels, which I roasted and ate without salt, pepper, or grease in this way. I had for the first time the true taste of the morel, which is truly... An insipid, tasteless food. Oh, shnikes. I know. Dang, Lewis. 
That insipid. Insipid. Well. I, you know, I, I smart against it, but I do appreciate it. I also, this is literally why you like salt your food, my dude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like. If only we could go back in time and be like, just salt. Yeah. Lips. Be like, yeah. Be like, well, like, like harsh disc, man. Like, I appreciate that. But um, put salt on it. I. <laughs> Maybe you are the insipid, tasteless fool. Oh, heck. <laughs> Diss of history. Harsh disses mm. abound. Yes, yes. <laughs> but some people were trying to redeem the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1899, Kate Sergeant published one of the first American cookbooks dedicated entirely to mushrooms. 100 mushroom recipes are receipts. Here's a quote. The general opinion in this country regarding mushrooms has been that with one or two exceptions, all forms of fungus growth are either poisonous or unwholesome, but it's very gratifying to observe the change that is rapidly taking place in the public mind. Soon, public opinion will acknowledge that it is an established fact that the great majority of the larger funguses, especially of those that grow in fields and other open places, are not only wholesome, but highly nutritious. Wise words. Wise words. I gotta look at these recipes. Right? 100 mushroom recipes. I always need more mushroom recipes. I know. And 100. I'm impressed. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so, uh, skipping ahead, during the 1980s and 90s here in the U.S., commercial mushroom harvesting on federal lands in the Pacific Northwest really ramped up, and <laughs> surveys showed that morels were in the top three of these mushrooms that were being harvested as part of this ramping up. Um, The first U.S. patent for successful commercial cultivation of morels was filed in 1981 by Neogen, a biotech company out of Michigan that sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. Um, This coincided with an increased American interest in eating wild or foraged or new things, kind of in quotes. Yeah. Because of this... The American people slowly became more aware of morels, but some people were still unsure. Um, When James Beard first encountered them in a store in 1998, he said, quote, they resembled dried up brains. And I appreciate here that James Beard was familiar enough with brains to be like, Mm -hmm. this is what they look like, but was just like, what the heck is this mushroom? (laughs) It's pretty cool. Yes. Um, in the early 2000s, a few different American research projects attempted to cultivate morels, but all of them wound up failing. Um, however, similar research in China seems to have panned out. As of uh, 2017, China boasted over 23,000 acres of farmed morels. Um, they are still finicky and expensive, though, and apparently all of the research here indicates that morels fruit best when the uh, sclerodia are starved to promote fruiting, and then you, like, hella feed the budding fruit. So it's a delicate, delicate balance there. Hmm. Very mysterious indeed, Morels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, in 2014, the Birch Creek Fire in Canada's Northwest Territories devastated that region's boreal forest, but that did lead to a lot of morel mushrooms, like, worth $100 million amount. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and this is a this is kind of a known phenomenon. Um, th- there have been a few studies published about this relation between forest fires and subsequent bumper crops of morels. One in particular in um, in 2016 came out that um, that was really pretty cool. So, okay, first of all, in the literature, mushrooms that spring up after fires are called uh, phenicoids after the mythical phoenix, like rising up oh. from the ashes. So cool. I love it when researchers are nerds. <laughs> and uh, so so from, from this 2016 paper, um, the researchers found that these very particular circumstances seem to lead to morel growth in particular spots of recently burned hardwood or pine forests. Um, they think that, like, the mycelium had to have already existed and survived the fire due to, you know, very specific fire circumstances, and that the fire then created perfect soil conditions for the mushrooms to fruit in. The study was conducted in Yosemite, and it calculated that the year after white fir forest fires, over a million morels probably grow, and thus suggested upping the limit of recreational morel collection in Yosemite, the year after such fires, from one pint per person per day, which is the normal, to four liters per person per day. Whoa. Right? Wow. Uh, huh. Phoenix mushrooms. They yeah. got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. They do. <laughs> and as of 2020, Gregory Bonito, Trey Malone, and Scott Swinton, three Michigan State University professors, with funding from the USDA, launched the research project called Cultivating a Morel Mushroom Industry in the North Central United States. And by the way, the USDA has a very detailed, very helpful, I think it was like 80 pages, document on morel mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. One of the professors said they're hoping to provide an alternate revenue stream for people working in agriculture. So this is trying to figure out the mystery of the morel mushroom is an ongoing project. It. It is because they are so prized and, you know, right, right, like a like a good source of revenue if you can figure out how to make them work, um, but also just real interesting, just real weird. <laughs> <laughs> they are weird. I like them. I do too, but if the zombie apocalypse happens, Morels, remember, <laughs> we, we did you good. We built you up. All right. You may look like brains, but you don't have to eat any brains. That's all. I'm yeah, saying. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Like, like we welcome our future fungal overlords. I know <laughs> there that there was a fun guy joke in there, Lauren. No, Why no. did you do it? I, I... <laughs> I'm just, I'm just setting them up for you to set and spike. Come on. I know, <laughs> I, I know, and I can always tell. We recently talked about how in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> You and our our coworker and friend Ben, and I can't resist when you set up these opportunities, and you know it. <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah, I I can't remember if I said uh, on air or if it was during another conversation, but yeah, there are definitely times during our D and D games. Annie is our DM, and uh, and there it's not infrequent that I'm like, oh man, I know that Annie has created an intricate pun-related backstory (laughs) for this random thing or person. And if I can just figure out a way to get my character to ask her, (laughs) it will be so worthwhile. (laughs) 
I spend a lot of time <laughs> in that game working out ways to do that. I'm glad someone, uh, I don't know if appreciates is the right word, but <laughs> seeks out these puns because yes, they are there and yes, they are bad. And sometimes <laughs> I'm so inappropriately proud of them. And sometimes I can't get through them without laughing myself because they're so bad. But it's true, dear listener. All of this is true. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm not expecting what, something to be uncovered, and then it is. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe now I have to say it out loud and did this to yourself. But here we go. <laughs> Maybe I will have a mushroom overlord. Ooh. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's an idea. Okay. I this is probably going to end poorly for my character that I, I hate. Yes. <laughs> oh, because ne- never give your DM ideas, y'all. Never do it. <laughs> no. And I mean, the go-to pun is, as Andrew, super producer Andrew said when we told him what we were doing this, is the immoral mushroom. Yeah. Immoral mushroom. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, on that note, I think... <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. It's all going to be good. Uh, I think that's what we have to say about the Morel Mushroom for now. It is. Um, we do have some listener mail for you, though. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with... Creepy. 
trying to give them the gravitas they deserve. I'm sure we nailed it. I uh, yes, I <laughs> gravitas is something I often associate with us. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of our brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mushroom gravitas. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Susan wrote, I just started listening to the Haggis episode and thought I'd write in. First, as your resident Cincinnatian, I'll tell you a secret. Mm. Goethe is pretty much just Germanish Haggis. <laughs> yes, I'm beginning to think that all cultures have a similar dish. Cheap meats, grain for filler, add local spices to taste. Scott's just up the ante <laughs> and cook it in a stomach. <laughs> But the tastes and textures are all similar. Secondly, my father has decided that in addition to our actual German heritage, he's claiming Scottish as well, mainly because his good friend is actually Scottish and has liberally plied him with scotch. (laughs) Yeah. So dad gets dressed up in a kilt and marches in parades. Okay. (laughs) He also has participated in the haggis ceremony at many of Bobby Burns and St. Andrews and any other excuse to have haggis and more scotch. One night when I was in my 20s, my father asked me to make haggis sauce for him and his friends. I was intrigued because as far as I knew, haggis was spread on saltines and eaten delicately, followed by a piece of sheet cake for Bobby Burns' birthday. I agreed and dad gave me a recipe supposedly from a cook in Scotland. I can't remember all the ingredients, but I know I sauteed garlic and onions, added a cup of heavy cream to them, and then a cup of whiskey. The fumes were atrocious, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure I lost a fair amount of brain cells, maybe all or at least part of third grade. (laughs) Dad says the sauce tasted all right, but I never made it again, and he's never asked for it again, so I'm guessing it wasn't my best effort. (laughs) I mean, a cup of whiskey is... That's quite a bit of whiskey in a sauce. I don't think I've ever made a recipe... It called for that much alcohol in it. Uh, maybe a rum cake, but I don't think so. Yeah, I may, maybe like a like a um, what's what's it called? Like a like a sorbet with a like a wine oh, yeah. sorbet where you basically cook down a whole bottle of wine with <laughs> right about equal parts sugar um, mm-hmm. and like a lot of fruit. But yeah, but yeah, gosh, a cup of. Okay, all right. And I'm also, coming back. What, what's haggis sauce? <laughs> we have many questions. We do. <laughs> In the meanwhile, Steph wrote, I just listened to your oatmeal episode and was reminded of a trip I took to Copenhagen in 2019, especially when you mentioned bizarro savory oatmeals. Let me start off with saying that I was never a fan of oatmeal growing up because I thought it was just so boring. That all changed during that trip. At an upscale food hall, we stumbled upon a porridge bar called Grood. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I did look up the, it's it's one of those, oh, I can't even describe it. I don't even know like the name a, for the oh, character. Oh, the strike? Yeah. <laughs> Heck. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, they serve porridge bowls of all sorts, from breakfasty oatmeals, three-grain porridges, and chia seed puddings served in the morning, to savory rice congee, risotto, uh, barleyoto, and dal bowls served for lunch and dinner. While not strictly oatmeal per se, these grain bowls definitely fit into the porridge category. On our first visit, we ordered the chicken congee. While it was by no means authentic, it was absolutely delicious. The base rice porridge was seasoned with soy and sesame oil, and the whole thing topped with lots of peanuts, scallions, and cilantro. I was hooked. 
We went back the next day and tried the dal with cherry tomatoes, almonds, cilantro, and skir. The mushroom barley oto with uh, pickled porbellos, parmesan, thyme, and watercress. And the chia seed pudding with apples, toasted coconut, peanut butter, sliced almonds, and skir. They were all so good. We went back the next two mornings and got their more typical oatmeals. My favorite was their all-in porridge that included all 15 of their toppings. Two types of fruit compotes, caramel sauce, peanut butter, skir, almonds, hazelnuts, granola, toasted coconut, cacao nibs, chocolate chips, freeze-dried raspberries, and fresh banana, apple, and strawberries. I never would have thought that one of my favorite food memories from that trip would be related to porridge. I just couldn't get enough. Over a period of four days, we went to Grud four times and had seven bowls of porridge. Sweet, savory, I loved it all. I got so into porridge during our short time in Copenhagen that I even looked for some at the local grocery stores to bring back to the States as a souvenir. There were so many options to choose from. Unfortunately, none of the packaging was in English, so I had to rely heavily on my Google Translate app to figure out what grains and other ingredients were in each of them. I spent probably upwards of an hour in the cereal aisle deciding which ones to buy while my poor mom waited patiently for me. I ended up bringing a couple of two-pound bags of multigrain porridge plus a few single-serve instant porridge cups back with me to the U.S., along with many other foodstuffs that I picked up during my trip. Needless to say, my luggage was very heavy on my trip back. Alas, this story doesn't quite have a happy ending. When I got home to San Francisco, it was a bit of a challenge to find kitchen cabinet space to put all my goodies. I made the unfortunate mistake of putting the bags of porridge in the same cabinet as our heavily scented garbage bags. Once I finally got around to opening them a few months later, the scent from the garbage bags had permeated the paper packaging and rendered the porridge inedible. I tried to eat through a bowl but just couldn't do it and had to dump it all in the compost. My husband had never seen me so sad. That is tragic. Oh, my goodness. All that work, picking it out, bringing it back. You you think you're going to have a taste of your fantastic times? And it tastes like garbage bags. (laughs) It tastes like garbage bags. That's terrible. That is. But the porridges sound amazing. Yes. Uh, And the pictures uh, you sent along, so good. They look so good. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Love it. The world of porridge. A world of porridge awaits. So many options. Um, thanks to both of those listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.